Welcome to Living and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, and Living Powers from Ghent University, Belgium. We aim to draw a map of the state of criminology across Europe through the words of contemporary criminologists. How is criminology defined and taught? Which are the main lines of research? Which are the main schools of thought in each country? These and many other questions are answered here by fellow researchers who share their vision on the development of criminology in their countries from its beginnings to the second decade of the 21st century. If you want to know and compare their stories, stay tuned. Today we are interviewing Jan van Dijk. Jan van Dijk is professor of victimology and human security at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. He holds a degree in law from Leiden University and a PhD in criminology from the University of Nijmegen. Jan van Dijk was the former director of the Research and Documentation Center of the Dutch Ministry of Justice and Security. Under his supervision, programs of policy-oriented research were launched on alternative sanctions, victims' rights, crime prevention and organized crime. He later acted as director of the strategic policy planning at the same ministry. He played a major role in the development of the International Crime Victim Survey, the ICVS, together with, amongst others, Pat Mayhew and Martin Kilias. This interview was conducted on the 28th of March 2023. Welcome, Jan van Dijk. It's really a pleasure to, uh, to have you here today. Welcome, Jan van Dijk. Uh, it's an honor to have you as our guest in our podcast. It's my pleasure altogether. Great. So let us start with the first um, question we ask everybody, and that question is related to how one would define criminology as it exists in uh, the Netherlands. Or maybe the Netherlands is too too small. What's your opinion about this? Well, yes, in the Netherlands, it's, it has become very much an empirical okay. uh, science. If I, if I uh, have to define criminology in the Netherlands, I would like to go back a little bit in history, uh, because I think we, we can see some very clear uh, trends over the past 50 years. When I was a student at Leiden University with uh, Professor Nagel, it was a auxiliary science of uh, criminal law. So there were criminal law professors and some of them had a bit of interest in criminology. Uh, and very often it was actually the, the professor of criminal law who was also teaching criminology on the side, so to speak. Uh, Van Bemmelen in Leiden was uh, famous for that. Uh, but then uh, in the in the late 60s, early 70s, critical criminology really became suddenly very, very fashionable. Uh, some of the professors, uh, Bianchi, Hulsman, uh, they started to argue for the uh, reduction or even ab total abolition of the criminal justice system. So the, uh, the Dutch criminologists went very far. I think they were a little bit more extreme uh, for instance, then critical criminology in, uh, in, in the UK. 
and that uh, that was really uh, a, a flame in the pan. It became uh, they became public figures. They they uh, they gave lectures everywhere. They were on the media very uh, frequently, and that of course gave a lot of uh, uh, profile to criminology. And and all of a sudden they were no longer. Uh, the assistance of the criminal law professor because they, they were uh, they were public figures, and as as these things go, uh, universities are very oppor uh, opportunistic. Suddenly, all universities wanted to have a, uh, an institute of criminology because that uh, was a was a way to show you were a progressive, uh, open-minded university. And then you, you see around 1970 that. Uh, you see criminology institutes popping up everywhere. Uh, the Free Amsterdam opened the Bonger Institute. I myself was recruited by Nijmegen, totally new institute uh, with, with lots of interest and a lots of support. I think there was there was no university left that didn't have a criminology uh, criminological institute. So they they had uh, about 10, 10 years. They were very very successful. It was it was mainly dominated by critical criminology. And you could also say there was there was very little interest in crime. There was a lot of, there was mainly interest in, in criticizing criminal justice. So the studies were about discrimination, uh, class discrimination, uh, uh, gender discrimination. Uh, and uh, there was uh, hardly any interest left in causes of crime. And certainly not in in personalities of uh, that that uh, that would be uh, a, a risk factor for for a criminal behavior. That was uh, that was no longer a topic. But then what happened parallel to these enthusiastic conferences about uh, the need to abolish the criminal justice system, uh, common crime in the Netherlands went up by ten percent per year, and it, it became also very. <laughs> Uh, topical uh, issue, but uh, for quite other reasons, it, it it became a problem for the middle classes, and 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 also feminists started to uh, to raise the issue of uh, domestic uh, rape crisis centers, shelter homes. Uh, already in '72, I think the first shelter home was opened in Amsterdam, and that was difficult to reconcile with this exclusive discourse about uh, uh, how can we abolish uh, criminal justice system. The feminists didn't agree with that position and, and the big political parties didn't agree. So in the in the early 80s, it became clear for the Ministry of Justice that they needed another, they needed help. They needed new ideas uh, how to address this fear of crime issue. Uh, and the critical criminologists didn't deliver because they, and, and the, the truth is they didn't know very much about crime because they had not studied crime for uh, in their careers. So they, it's, it's, it's a very strange situation that we, crime was a top issue and criminology was very popular, but it was not interested in, in, in crime. Uh, and that's what, ha and what happened then and, and this is maybe uh, not totally unique for the Netherlands because the same has happened in the UK, that the government uh, in, in the Netherlands, the Ministry of Justice in London, the Home Office, felt this need. We need we need advice from from social scientists.
because this is a social phenomenon. It's not a legal issue. And so at the home office, uh, Ron Clark was invited to set up a, a re the research and planning unit. And almost in the same year, uh, Wouter Böckhuizen, the professor of criminology at Groningen, was invited to set up a in-house research center at the yeah, rather conservative uh, Ministry of Justice. And he invited some uh, some young young generation of social scientists. And this included Eugene uh, uh, Junger, but also myself, Dato Steenhouse. And, and I must also admit, uh, suddenly there were funds to do all kinds of studies. Uh, so Dutch criminology became very much policy oriented. First it was critical, then it became policy oriented. So there was, we, we were not really theory uh, oriented uh, criminologists, but we were interested in crime as a social problem. And of course, assistance to victims is very, comes, comes up very naturally. If you are focusing on crime, you are also focusing on the receiving end of crime, the victims. So these, these became certainly the topics. Uh, and then uh, criminology was maybe a little bit less in the, in, the, in the media, but it became very, really extraordinarily influential in policy making in the Netherlands, probably even more than in the UK. So the, the Research and Documentation Center of the Ministry of Justice, which was already at the time quite a big center with a staff of 40, at least 40, maybe even 50 researchers, which is still big, also to the current standards, uh, they, they were also invited to join committees that drafted legislation or uh, in, 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 uh, in the mid 80s drafted a comprehensive policy plan how to tackle crime called society and crime. That was, I can say without exaggerating, really the fruit of the research uh, and, and, and documentation center at the ministry. We, we were the, the drafters of that policy plan. Uh, and it was a it was a criminologically based policy plan for the first time, I guess, in the history of Dutch criminal policies. And that that was another peak in Dutch criminology. Uh, it was also criticized because it was indeed very much focused on uh, advising the government how to tackle crime and assist victims. Uh, so. Of course, there is room to, to criticize that exclusive focus. It dominated very much the discourse and the publications in the journal and so on and so forth. Then what happened is that Wouter Buikhuizen, the same Wouter Buikhuizen, uh, became a little bit bored with his success at the ministry and felt, I have these young Turks now and they, they, can, they can do it themselves. And we, we felt the same, so, uh, so he decided to go back to, to academia and set up a very interesting uh, research center at Leiden University, focusing on biosocial research. So he wanted to bring in uh, the medical sciences. He was also interested in, uh, in, in, in the psychophysiological factors, 
And as as uh, certain Lieben will know, uh, as a as a neighbor, uh, this created enormous uh, uh, outcry uh, in the in the leftish or left uh, media. And I really, don't uh, this was this was really huge. Uh, the criticism was that he was a neo Lombroso and, and actually th that he was a fascist who wanted to bring back uh, Nazi uh, kind of criminology. I, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, these were the terms that that were used, Liebman. You you will have heard about that. Yeah, I remember the columns by uh, Piet Gress. Yes. Who were very much, um, I mean, um, very, very strongly criticizing his work as being a new Nazi. And basically he wanted to, if I remember the discussion and I read the um, the, the book he, he wrote, it's on biosocial interactions. He just wanted to introduce the ideas of, of Mednick, who was a psychologist. Yes. And there was nothing, nothing deterministic about it. But of course, if you think of, of the history of biology, you can understand the, the I mean, the fear, but you should read the plans before uh, starting a moral panic, I would say. But of course, that's easy to say so many years afterwards, because if I'm not mistaken, Berghausen was, after all, rehabilitated. I don't remember when. Yeah, yeah great. Well, he was certainly, he, he, he got a, a medal from the Queen and, 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 and the university organized a big uh, uh, seminar for him. Okay, but yeah. but just say yeah. before we we need to talk about what happened because that that uh, campaign had serious consequences. Exactly, exactly. It was, and and, and it's not just uh, the media, not just the journalists. Uh, but Pete Kreis himself was a professor at the University of Amsterdam in uh, in 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 uh, IT in mathematics, in computer science, uh, and there were also some professors including the professor of the Free University, Herman Bianchi, one of the radicals, uh, who openly took sides with Pete Rice against him, basically also accusing uh, Wouter of being a, a kind of a, a neo-Nazi. Uh, really awful things have, have, have happened. And many other criminologists were scared shitless. They felt, oh, this is such a big uh, outcry. I, I keep out of this. So there were there was also a lot of treason. At least that's my my recollection. A lot of cowardice. Uh, but it also had a uh, well. What happened was that he was forced to uh, to re resign. So he couldn't do his research. He, he the 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 child protection office. Everyone said that man will never enter our premises with his research. So he couldn't do his research. There was an awful atmosphere also uh, at the university, a lot of opposition, uh, cowardice. So after a few years, he, he uh, decided to become an antique dealer. And that was the end of his career because the, there was no, he has never, there was no comeback. An antique uh, dealer, eh? Buick Huysen, for, the, for those who are listening, because the name, as you pronounce it, it's difficult to catch if they want to to see the history. So he became an specialist uh, in antiquities. And I think he went to live to Spain, or am I wrong about that? Correct. After, uh, uh, he was about an antique dealer for about 10 years. And then he and his uh, new wife uh, went to Spain. And, but for medical reasons, they, they, they came back later to the Netherlands. So he, he, he still lives in, in the Netherlands. 
now, but he has been in Spain for about 10 years, I think. Yes, so correct. Th this was yeah, a campaign by the radical left, a sort of cancel culture before the hour. Eh? It's similar to what has happening nowadays in, in some places. And they managed to destroy the life and the career of the person. Eh? Absolutely. But the side effect of all this, because we are not going in, in, into the history of this, this tragic history of the man, but it had an enormous impact on criminology in the Netherlands. You can imagine that uh, no other university would ever think for a second to set up a similar institute. It was, it was a total disaster for Leiden University. So criminology uh, went in decline at the universities. It was a bit, it was a, bit uh, uh, a guilty topic all of a sudden. So for, for instance, Nijmegen, the Institute in Nijmegen, where I have started my career before joining the, the Ministry of Justice, uh, was closed. And many other institutes were, had very reduced staff. So we, we went uh, really in a, in a rapid decline. Uh, and also the atmosphere in the community. Uh, science is also dependent on communities. The, the Society of Criminology was completely uh, in a civil war. I, 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 I gave up my membership. Uh, okay, I withdrew. So yes. You are now talking about the Dutch Society of Criminology. Yes. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. We, we couldn't have nice meetings together anymore because of this trauma and this fight. Which is the year, more or less? around 1990 okay okay a bit earlier already but the, uh i mean by 1990 it was all over okay he had resigned and it was uh, finished now what happened then some people decided that it was it was unbalanced that you had a still prospering uh in-house center at the ministry but criminology was almost brain dead at the universities. So the, the Dutch Society for, uh, for Science, for Fundamental Science, consulted with the Ministry of Justice. Shouldn't we launch a new university-based criminological institute? And that became NSCR, first founded in Leiden and now at Free University in Amsterdam. So it was again a, a, a really a, a, a policy decision of some of, of the of, of the Dutch establishment that they said, okay, we have the research and documentation center at the ministry, but there must also be criminology at the universities, and that needs to be given a financial boost. And that's that's what happened. So if you now look at uh, Dutch criminology, it is again university based. Because many of the people who worked at NSCR have become professors. They, so they, they, they got the opportunity to become internationally credible researchers, and then they got chairs elsewhere. So you see a renaissance of uh, academic criminology. Now, if you ask me what is Dutch criminology, then, then I would say it is very much uh, empirical criminology more than in, in, in many other countries where there is a theoretical paradigm that you need to be, that it needs to be theory based. We don't have that so much in the Netherlands because the, 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 the policy-oriented research of people like Eugene Junger and myself 
uh, was very empirical because we had to 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 yeah to explain to the to the politicians what is crime what can you do about crime uh, and i think the victimization surveys that i launched with with many of the ministry and that Yuzin uh, did with the self report delinquency studies are very typical for for that era in criminology nsr has continued that empirical tradition uh, i think you would it would really be challenging for them to if you would ask them what is your theoretical orientation they i i think they you get many answers because uh, they do they do excellent empirical research it is methodologically i think top rate that's also why it is published uh, in the, in the in the in the top journals uh but there is very little of very it is it is very solid innovative empirical research i don't see a theoretical school for the moment and that's so that is to sum up to make a long story uh, short uh, dutch criminology for various reasons has now emerged as a strong empirical discipline on its own right uh, very well uh, rooted in the in the universities and we still also have the in-house research center but it doesn't have the position it had uh, 30 years ago it is again criminology yeah it's also a very in three at three universities it's a very popular course we have we have many many bachelors like in belgium and in england and and many many master students uh, unbelievably more than there were 40 years ago so in that respect, uh, I, I, you can say it is. It was. A, it has been a success story, uh, eventually, because some of the popularity of the critical criminology, it has survived. It is still a popular course uh, at, at several universities. Uh, for instance, uh, to 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 bring it back a little bit to me, uh, I did a textbook on criminology in 1990 or 1991. There was there was no textbook at the moment. Uh, this is now we are now working on the on the twelfth edition. Uh, that that is also I think uh, uh, evidence that the discipline is uh, is uh, profit is 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 prosper is prosperous. Uh, otherwise, the, the the publisher wouldn't <laughs> start asking for new editions. That's clear. Uh, so that's a good sign, I think. Yeah. So just for for the for the listeners, when you talk about the research and documentation center, many times is known by the the Dutch abbreviation WODC, which corresponds to the name uh, in Dutch, which I will not try to pronounce. So just uh, WODC, and then the uh, the other issue that you mentioned is NSCR, which is the Netherlands Center uh, for Research. On so crime and law enforcement. Yes, crime and law enforcement. Yeah, I, I, I'm supposed to know that because um, I'm head of the uh, International Advisory Committee, so exactly. I should be able to pronounce it the right way, the long way. So, and uh, still, the Research and Documentation Center uh, is active, eh? but Thank a little bit yeah, yeah. less than than in your in the days because at that time the WODC, you were there and Josine was also there for a long time, eh? She was my successor, yes, as a director. 
Yeah. Ah, okay. So yeah. you were first there and then Josin uh, entered the field. At that time, the WODC played a major role also in the development of, uh, of victimization surveys. And the self-report delinquency survey of Josin. Yes, I, I agree. That is something that, I mean, I, I remember Bracewaite once told me when I met him, he said, how come such a little country <laughs> does all these comparative studies? And then I answered him, well, it's, well, that's exactly why we also have big publishing houses in the Netherlands, like Kluber and Elsevier, because they their own market was rather limited. <laughs> so they went international. We've, we became uh, convinced this is so interesting, a victimization survey. Why not do it uh, in other countries as well? But how did it happen, this development of the, because first it was the Dutch victimization survey and then the international, yeah? So maybe you, you, you can tell us also that story because it's related also to the development of, uh, of criminology and, and, and victimology. We could talk about the place we'll get to victimology later. Well, it, you remember, it, there is a personal side to that. Uh, so I had... Uh, <clears throat> launched, developed the Dutch victimization survey, and we were the first in, in Europe, because the first national survey was done in 72, 73, long before the British victimization survey, or any other survey. Well, there are historical uh, little things that were done for instance, in Finland, yeah. in, in Finland, but that it, it doesn't amount to a national survey on crime in, in, in general. So we were really, the, the after the US, we were the first with a national survey covering common crime. With, with because we were policy oriented, with some differences with the American survey, because we, we always were very interested also in, did they report to the police? Were they happy with the police? You, that kind of question was never asked in the American survey. The American survey was really a statistical exercise, how to better measure crime. The Dutch survey from the beginning was a little bit more curious about what happened with the victims. And this is also clear in, in the publications, because one of my first international publications, the title was Going Beyond Measuring Crime. That, that's, so I, I, I felt we, we will do things a little bit different uh, from the American uh, colleagues. Then after four or five years, the, the Central Bureau of Statistics in the Netherlands decided that they have the monopoly on statistics and it had developed into a regular survey producing statistics and they claimed, bring it over. This is our, this is our, our territory. You are, you, are, you are a trespasser with your survey. <laughs> Uh, and they took it over. Now, what, what what happened with my ego? I said, gee, now I will do something else. I will continue with the survey, but I'll do it internationally. Uh, and that's why I approached um, uh, pa Patricia Mayu at the home office and Ma Martin Kilias uh, in Lausanne, because we met in Strasbourg at the Council of Europe. Uh, so over, over drinks in Strasbourg, we... Uh, we, we said maybe we, we we should work together on a standardized survey. Uh, I must say that that England and Art and Switzerland had already used the Dutch questionnaire as a building uh, block for their own national surveys. 
So there were there were three surveys, and then we have, then I asked the Minister of Justice. This is really how it happened. I had uh, drafted uh, speeches for him, and I did a lot. Not uh, what criminology usually doesn't. So I had some credit with the man, and I said, "Do me a favor now. You send a personal letter to all the ministers of justice uh, of the of the EU." inviting them to take part in this uh, wonderful idea of Jens van Dijk to do a service. And that really helped a lot. So, so I, I'm sure this helped in, in Belgium. I have to say that the Belgian um, crime victim survey was very much inspired by, by the Dutch one indeed, but it was many years later, just for the record for our listeners, uh, the first official um, nationwide uh, survey was, uh, I think, um, conducted for the first time in 1997. Uh, we had some local expertise in the yeah. 80s, but also very much inspired by the Dutch uh, survey. So we kind of like used the Dutch example and uh, started later on. So it was very influential. It's, it's interesting to hear that it was influential a little bit in uh, different parts of both continental Europe and the UK. Yes, yes. Also in Eastern Europe, I got a grant from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and that's how uh, the first Polish and Hungarian, uh, Serbian, all these countries have done surveys with uh, funding from the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs and continued with it, some of them, not all of them. But I mentioned Bulgaria and Poland because they still have a national survey. Uh, certainly Bulgaria has uh, regularly repeated. And that is basically the International Crime Survey, which which was a and also, but also Japan has a survey that is repeated. And and in Latin America, we have had indirectly also a lot of uh, we put our stamp also, I think, on many of the surveys in in Argentina, but also in Brazil uh, and so on and so and 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 so forth. Empirical criminology, but with an international uh, outlook, you could say. Uh, and let, let let me repeat, uh, Josine, uh, a few years after the me, did the same with the self-report delinquency study, which is still going on uh, with the uh, another leadership now of uh, Ineke Haan, who I also see still a little bit as a Dutch criminologist, because she got her training at Tilburg University. The Americans will not know that, but that is, this is, I know it is to be true. <laughs> She was one of the first uh, sociology students at the Tilburg University. So that that is uh, so they they send the letters to these uh, ministries of um, of justice. Personal letters, yes, with the signature yeah. on the personal letterhead and so on. Yeah, very formal. It's called a blue letter in the Dutch uh, terminology. A blue letter it means a letter that the minister himself takes seriously. Ah, yes. nice. Okay, and this then. The first um, survey was conducted. I know that there was a link also because Martin Kilias was um, going to the to the WODC. He he spent his first sabbatical. He was at the WODC and he he, he speaks uh, Dutch. There was a link there also with the the um, the methodology they use. You were the first to use. Um, Katie. Katie, eh? Katie. Katie, Katie, yeah, yes, correct. Yeah. Computer assisted telephone interview that Martin had tested in Switzerland. And if we talk a little bit about these methodologies eh, of the of the surveys, eh? 
because yes. you saw everything. You saw all the changes when you started uh, in seventy-two. Or yeah, it was it was face to face. It face was to face, face to face, and I and I remember uh, that made it difficult to carry it out in some parts of Amsterdam because they were so dangerous. <laughs> the interviewers didn't want to go, and so we we need to do something else. Uh, the Belmermeer at that time. It was impossible to go there. It's unimaginable for a young generation, but some of the most uh, touristy places in Amsterdam were no-go areas uh, around 1980. The Newmarkt, where, where now all the people from all over the world have a coffee, you couldn't go. The police didn't go, to, didn't show, didn't dare to show their faces after six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> Uh, so certainly interviewers didn't go there. <laughs> so, but and then I heard that there was in Amsterdam a company. It was called Interview, uh, and they used Katie. And then I thought, oh, but they sit in the room with the telephones, and why they can call Germany from there? And then we have the with a few interviewers uh, that we can control and check. We can do interviews everywhere without any uh, train or uh, flight costs. That was that was my brainwave that I thought, this is it. So Katie for me was also immediately an opportunity to do to go international. That was much more difficult in reality. It it it, it couldn't be done from Amsterdam. That was not technically possible. Not uh, at that time. Today. No, not at that time. But still, you need to train your interviewers and they yeah. need to be nationals. So it was a little bit naive. Yeah. But technically, you could do it. And I had this brain where I went, oh, this is, the, and, and it's not expensive either. Uh, but uh, it's not how it happened. Uh, it's always done by local teams. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that there was this, because it is nowadays, because first I thought in the cost, now it's very cheap to call everywhere in the world. Yeah, um, it's, it's even cheaper to do it with the web. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But the problem is that not everyone has uh, this, the landlines disappear. But I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that it, it was. It could have been a good idea, but you would need people from every country. You would need um, to create to have interviewers, perhaps among the the students that come from different. It's not so easy, but it, it would be a nice idea from Amsterdam. You could yeah, have yeah, the work. That was my original idea from the overtone. Where this center was, I thought, oh, we do it from the overtone. Ah, yeah. And and then they started, and this that yeah, that was like a, a window of opportunity, perfect window of opportunity, at least for ten years until exactly. And then it closed. One, <laughs> it closed. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. And then the response rate started to drop. Uh, they are still dropping, and now it's uh, it's all done on on. on uh, at least in the Netherlands and and other, and, and I think also in uh, in Switzerland with panels, pre-prepared uh, panels, and then it's done on the website. And if they can't handle the website, they uh, they get a they get a letter or a telephone call. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, the new. So it's mixed method now. It's it's complicated, yeah. but you you are absolutely right. It was indeed a window of opportunity of a max ten years. Then it was yeah. over. Yeah, and um, yeah, but because now there is also this tendency to say, okay, we'll do it this way, and then we will wake the sample. Huh? But, okay, 
you can waste it, but what you, because yeah, you can waste it, but it doesn't change the fact that the ones some people are not answering. Yeah, so but yeah, what, the panel seems a good solution, but the the things that are put online simply. Do, do you have any opinion about that? Well, we tested it a little uh, with the Max Planck Institute. Yeah, I remember. That's why I asked. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. So we <laughs> tested it, and at that time, our conclusion was that people—you you have, of course, the the bias because people that use the internet almost by definition at that time were not a sample of the population, but a very skewed sample of of uh, high young and and uh, higher educated. Uh, that has changed a little bit now, but at that time that was very much the case. But apart from that, there is also a moat effect. And that is that people in the total, total anonymity of their, their own screen, they bullshit a lot. More than when they have an interviewer or even if a man or a woman on the phone talking to them. So we, we, we got, you tend to get more extreme answers. And what is an extreme answer? In a, in, a, in a victimization survey is that, yes, I have been robbed and after that I was raped. And people that want to be interesting, they, they start to exaggerate. And that was my feeling of the first pilots we did, that there, there was more uh, noise in the answers, uh, noise that inflated the rates, which is very dangerous, of course, for a victimization survey. Yeah. Yeah, of course, this is a major point you're raising, for example, at one university, they had this survey about uh, life in the campus, and there was some extreme answers. And I thought, yeah, this this is a little bit weird to have uh, uh, these answers. So I didn't remember that you have already found that uh, at that time, these extreme answers. Eh? Yeah, I, I also, uh, I, of course, I my advice to criminologists when they do big service is always consult the real experts, not the criminologist. Consult <laughs> the people who, who make a living out of drawing the samples, doing the in that that's their business. So of course they know because that for them it's a matter of survival. There's enormous competition. Uh, and they told me at the time, uh, also on attitudinal questions. Uh, so do you like this politician or, or, and, and then with a, a Likert scale, you get much more extremes in the answers uh, on the web than, than in, a t in, a, in a face to face or a KT. That was known in the literature at that time. I'm, I'm, I'm not following it up now. Uh, yeah, but I knew that already. Yeah, but you know, Jan, you should Right. I know you wrote many, 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 many things, but uh, this practical knowledge, things that people must keep in mind when they do victimization service, because now as it is easy to put a survey, I get from my university once a week, maybe twice a week, one survey because it's, there is um, uh, another uh, department that was created and so they want to know. And uh, this this is all done very quickly because it's easy to use uh, an, uh, an, an, an app, an app and then put something and then uh, you put the questions and in a few minutes it's, it's uh, done. But all this knowledge in, in a concrete way, for example, 
United Nations did this manual on how to run victimization yeah. surveys, but uh, I think I think you were not at that time. You were not uh, really or, or no, no, no longer there. Eh? Yeah, no, no, because no, I was I was not. No, no, but I had, I was in a big uh, not a fight, but an argument with UNODC that that I said if really if countries do a survey for the first time. Please use the standardized methodology of the ICBS because otherwise you get a survey done in 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 Chile or in in, in Zambia and it, it it's they they develop it from scratch and they have their own questionnaire and then the results are totally in, and 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 that manual doesn't make that point. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> so I I said okay if you if you if you don't make that point for me it's a useless manual. Uh, and I still think, and this is fortunately, there are still countries that that approach me. Uh, also, the commercial companies, if they do a victimization survey, I, I I usually get consulted because they know that standardization is is yeah. is key. And if they, if they don't, the, the reports have little impact. Uh, if you can't compare yeah. with with the situation five years ago, and not with your neighboring country either. What does it mean that you have forty uh, percent victimization of some? What can the politicians do with that? Very little. Yeah, this issue of comparison said that. Uh, okay, no. Of course, uh, I, I I consider you also one of my mentors because uh, you, I I was um, with my I, my mentor was Martin Kinas at the University of Lausanne, but then I was lucky enough to 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 find you quite quickly, and then we we conducted research together, and uh, I learned a lot from that. And uh, there was this interest uh, uh, you, Patricia Mayhew, uh, 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 Martin Kinas for this comparative stuff, uh, and you you told me before that you you have been working on this issue of. Uh, Comparisons eh, of uh, writing about the need for comparative research. I'm convinced, but maybe you could say some something to the listeners. That I can also uh, personalize a, a little bit. My my father was uh, the, worked for a, uh, the largest trading company uh, of the Netherlands. So tobacco, uh, all these kind of things. A bit, a little bit <laughs> the colonial tradition of the Netherlands. So he were and and I always as a, as a child, I I was always fascinated by the day by the annual reports of his trading company, where I saw uh, this all kinds of beautiful graphs, the lemons and the, the oranges with with colors, uh, how much tobacco they had got from there and how much from there. So I was always fascinated that there is a whole world uh, where they used the same products. Uh, and to compare, that is really a childhood memory. Also, the the graphics. I was fascinated by by the com these comparative graphics with the beautiful colors, and some country that was really came out of the orange, <laughs> a huge part. So that is the root of my interest in this. Uh, is really the, these beautiful graphs, and I always, as you will know. Uh, in the, from the first, I have always published uh, victimization rates, comparative rates with with the diagrams. This is my childhood <laughs> imprint. Uh, that's what I wanted, as many countries as possible, in in the diagrams. Yeah. Uh, 
so that was that 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 was done, and I always felt it's very strangely that so this is the most interesting type of criminology that you can imagine. But soon I found out I was I was very much alone with that idea, because <laughs> most criminologists are m- much more interested in evaluating a new little program in their local prison or an innovation of their local police station. That's their kind of criminology, the little projects evaluating local issues. And this comparative perspective that you find in French uh, sociology and also in French uh, and partly also Italian criminology in the 19th century, that that has disappeared. Uh, That's that's a question by itself. It's it's partly maybe because of critical criminology who, who who always argue this is totally impossible because crime is a, is a cultural bound issue is a construction it's a and every country has its own construction social construction so you cannot compare maybe that is one of the reasons but the I was always a little bit disappointed by the lack of interest from the peers there was always interest from the media and that's that is that is unfortunate because the media always want to say uh, the crime is more of a problem in our country, and that's because of the leading political party. Uh, so we use it, and then the political party, of course, was not happy with that. Uh, my my latest report to tell you a, a, a secret among this stays among criminologists. Uh, in the, I put the, my last report uh, was about a country in the Caucasus. Well, it was Georgia. <laughs> let, let, let's be open about it, because we, we, we are researchers. It was never published, because it showed crime was not going in the right direction uh, under the new administration. And that this caused me endless discussions. They, they, they tore apart the methodology of that survey, of course, but they didn't like the results. So it's only available on my own uh, website. Ah, that's good to know. We will <laughs> put the link later. Um, yeah, yes. I mean, well, Durkheim, la sociologie comparée yeah. et la sociologie yeah. elle-même. Eh? So comparative, uh, comparative sociology is sociology itself. That was the tradition, yeah. as, as you mentioned at the beginning. Um, you know, I'm a fan. I've been doing the Council of European Statistics uh, yeah. Yeah. for 20 years, and we are now working on the on which that would be which will be published uh, in one month. And I also love these graphs and the and the maps. And I think that sometimes when the media intervenes, um, at the beginning we were very reluctant about uh, giving a lot of uh, publicity to the publication yeah. of the report. Yeah. But then. Um, what happened, contrary to what I thought, is that, uh, for example, one year Belgium did not answer, and then the press said, ah, Belgium is not answering. And this, since then, they are answering every year. Eh? And uh, a couple of times when I, <laughs> I had... They had something to hide, that's what the press said. <laughs> 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 and then uh, a couple of big countries that were delayed, they say, okay, cannot wait anymore, just be prepared for the reaction of the press. <laughs> and then... Suddenly, one day later, in one case, the same day, one big country that I will not mention, but a big country of Europe, I got the report, uh, the um, the answer the same day. So in the end, um, these comparisons uh, were positive, but 
in the case of the of the ICVS, I think it was not that case because the the latest one created some uh, the 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 publication of the latest uh, the one that was done in two thousand five the latest big wave of the ICVS was delayed a little bit. Um, I remember it was the time of tough on crime, tough tough on the causes of crime, and the UK yeah. was still a little bit high. It was the crime was going down, but it was yeah, a yeah, that's also an issue. Yeah, no, but there is oh, there is there are endless issues. We had a yeah. we had in New Zealand uh, the survey first survey in New Zealand. New Zealand came out very high on violence, and it was an enormous shock. And then the minister. Uh, stupidly enough, uh, started to uh, to pimp, to point his finger to the Maoris in the country. <laughs> he had to resign the next month. <laughs> it was the end of his career. <laughs> so victimization surveys, they are politically explosive. Yeah. Uh, but we should get, the world should get used to that because yeah. they may be explosive, but, but they're also truthful. They tell yeah. you what's going on. Uh, and and so perhaps, it, yeah, and perhaps the, these reactions that we, this is the extreme right wing parties um, uh, appearing everywhere is because sometimes the information is hidden to the public. Eh? There are some issues that are not mentioned, uh, and then you get someone who says, I'm going to tell you the truth, and this has some support, eh? but I don't know, maybe I'm going too far. In any case, so you, you, you worked at the WODC. Then you launched the ICVS, but you also did research uh, from international um, because you were at the at, the, at Unicree eh? at one moment. Well, UNODC first, yes, and yeah. and later Unicree, but they are related, of course, to each other. And uh, how did how did this happen? How criminology got to uh, to United Nations or the victim surveys? At ah, that that's an interesting case. Uh, the, the 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 executive director of UNODC at the time was a, a Italian criminologist or at least mafia researcher, Pino Alaki. Pino Alaki, yeah. And uh, he had heard of me, so he he uh, basically he he gave me a call and said, "Would you like to join?" And uh, for various reasons, there were also push push factors. Uh, the Bauhaus. Uh, affair, as we call it, made me a little bit uncomfortable in my own home country because I was a advocate for Bauhausen, not because I want to do biosocial research, but because I was morally upset by his, uh, by the ostracism of him. So for me, it was a freedom of speech issue, but I felt a little bit uncomfortable as, as, as other people. So the idea to go abroad was, was attractive. So that's how I ended up there, but it was not, uh, I lucky was very much opposed to the victimization survey. So <laughs> I had, uh, that was unfortunate. So we had to find ways to continue, it, but keep it out of his sight because he wanted exclusive focus on the mafias of the world, exclusive. And he, 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 measuring uh, uh, burglary or uh, street robbery, that for him that was still uh, child stuff. He didn't take that seriously at all. So, uh, in that respect, it was uh, I did I, I had to do it a little bit uh, on the side uh, in my UN years, and I must say also at the UN 
measuring crime is uh, is is politically very sensitive. So we, the same problem. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's partly also the pro a problem for the EU, I think. The EU, of course, should uh, sponsor a, a standardized Europe-wide or EU-wide victimization survey. That I think everyone from, from we all agree. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. It's it's very strange because there are other European surveys like the European yeah. Social Survey, which is conducted yeah. every second or every third year. I don't remember by heart, but which is very successful. And it even has some questions on, on fear of crime, but very basic yeah. questions. You know, the, the typical question. They are not the, the right questions. No, no, no absolutely no. not. But it's strange that I mean, this is finance. There's a lot of money going to the European Social Survey and they have a, a fantastic methodology, but they if this methodology could be applied to the study of crime and victimization, it would be great. I mean, yeah, and and uh, and and nowadays we could, because we have so much knowledge, we, we could do it with an abridged questionnaire, because mm -hmm. we know exactly what 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 works and what is most interesting. And of course, cybercrime needs to be part of it. I I hand this over to the to to the younger generation. Yeah. But maybe this is a story that needs to be uh, told, and as you are here, because what happened was it was the the fourth wave of the ICBS, or fifth wave, sorry, in 2004, 2005. It was published in 2007, 2008. And at that time, there was a kind of break. Um, yeah. And then, but 2009, you remember, uh, Eurostat, so you asked um, Heuni, to uh, make uh, to to try to develop a, a EU questionnaire, and they created the basis, and then we intervened. You, uh, University of Tilburg, and me at the University of Lausanne, and we uh, tested that pilot. We found there was it was a team with uh, Jan van Kesteren, Patricia Mejio, and Antonia Linde. The five of us worked a, a lot on that. We had meetings in um, in at Eurostat. Luxembourg. There was Luxembourg, yeah. And Luxembourg, yeah, exactly. And there the were this, I mean, it's very difficult because for some countries, the important thing is the region. For Italy, for example, it's important to have a big uh, sample to compare the regions. And then at that time, Jan, we were worried because they said this will take place in 2013. And we thought, oh, we're going to have a big gap between 2005 and 2013. And then the moment it was going, it was already pre-approved, it went to the parliament and there was an opposition, I think it was from the, I know it's from the English uh, party that okay. supported, sorry? From the UK, yes, yeah. the UK, yes. Yes, they, the, they, there was a, uh, a, a European member of parliament from the Conservative Party yeah. uh, who bluntly said, uh, I don't see the, the point where, because we have the British Crime Survey. <laughs> <laughs> a very unbelievable, stupid remark for a for an EU-wide survey. <laughs> we have it. We have already a British survey. Uh, and, and but there were other there were other issues also. It was it was it was expensive because of the huge sample sizes yeah. that were forced upon us. In, indeed, uh, by Italy and and, and others. Uh, in Romania, we had to use the the face-to-face -face interviewers because these people needed to to keep their employment and, and so on and so forth there were there were many other problems which made it uh, 
much more expensive than when you would outcontract it to one of the top uh, comparative survey companies. There are there aren't that many, but uh, they are still uh, active in Europe. Uh, they can do it for much less money. And then and then our idea, your member Marcello, was then we have a group of criminologists as as advisors, and they can also write the reports. Uh, but uh, no, that yeah, it was a tragic uh, disaster, a, a train wreck. Uh, the vetoing by the parliament was a, was a train wreck. Uh, and then it was very difficult to to uh, to re rehabilitate the corpse because it was it had been it had been tried, it it failed. Well, not it's not because of a lack of effort on uh, I think on on, on on my side, but I, I couldn't uh, oh, very, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, get life back into that corpse. Yeah. Uh, now it's incredible that it's just stupid intervention one day, and that changes the the history a little bit of uh, of uh, of victimization surveys in Europe. We could have had now for ten years uh, a victimization survey, maybe every two years, I don't know, and and it was blocked. And now, yeah, we have tried several several instances, and now Catherine Vilevel, who will also be on our podcast uh, soon. Um, she's launching it again. Um, yeah, we are trying also, to launch it again, but uh, trying to. We try. We try to launch. Yeah. Yeah. You you are also involved, and I am also yeah. involved in that group. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, but the strange thing is that uh, almost every year I get an invitation to to do the survey in, for instance, in in, in the Caucasus, uh, usually with money from the EU. <laughs> so it's not that they don't see the the utility. They, they think it's very important for an emerging democracy to do a survey, but not in the EU. That's, that's very, um, very paradoxical, though. Very yeah, paradoxical. It's, it's very surprising also because they had invested a lot in the pilot, in, in the, all the testing, yeah. and then go back like that. Um, yeah, it's really frustrating. Uh, let's see if now if this... Our battle now <laughs> will. Uh, well, you know what? The, what the best thing for for uh, for a comparative crime survey is that uh, is is when crime goes up. Yeah. So with cybercrime now becoming a real issue, certainly in in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it becomes the main priority of of law enforcement. Uh, maybe that's another window of opportunity. Uh, in the in uh, in in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and we we had already introduced a couple of questions there. Even if, uh, yeah, yeah, self, I mean, smartphones is 2007, the first um, uh, iPhone. We could have followed the the the, um, the increase uh, a little bit, maybe not perfectly, but at least with something. But uh, yeah, okay, that's the way it is. And so going back to to criminology, the, and you you did a lot your. Also, one of the founders of the International Society of Victimology. Eh? Mm -hmm. How do you see the link between? I mean, I always. It's not not important what I think. Um, the link between uh, criminology and, and victimology is it a part of criminology? Is a different um, field? What? How do you see it? Well, that's a very good question because when uh, when the Society was established. It was a meeting in Münster in Germany, partly for, maybe partly for historical reasons. And then there was a debate, uh, and I was part of that debate because the, there were people who said, 
victimology should be a uh, a notion within criminology. It is it adds a dimension to criminology, but you should not make it a standalone discipline, uh, because then then you lose sight of the the many interrelations with the other side, with the offender side. And I must admit, I was on the on that side in the debate. So I said, why do we need a, a society of victimology? Although I, I became the president later on. But at that time I said, Against well, your will. Is, this, is this because you need you want new posts for, your, for, for ourselves? Or why not make it a division within this international society of criminology, which at the time was a big, or a very powerful organization? That was my position. So I believed in the uh, that you should study also the interaction with the offenders, but also if you want uh, if you want to improve the services and the rights for crime victims, you cannot ignore that there is also in the criminal justice system, of course, another side. If I see now what happens, I see that the European Society of Criminology has a has a, a vibrant. Working group permanent workshop on victimology. Yeah. The American Society of Criminology has a vibrant uh, division on victimology. I see that victimology is now in Canada and Montreal popular within the School of Criminology. I see that victimology is now, fortunately, uh, not good. Again, booming in the Netherlands within the NSCR which is a, an institute on the study of law, crime and law enforcement. Uh, so you see that in, in that institutionally, uh, victimology has come back to criminology. There are very few active victimologists at, at, at now who argue for an independent victimology, but there were 20 years ago, uh, several. In the US, in Germany, there, there was really this idea of uh, of uh, Benjamin Mendelssohn, one of the founding fathers, who wanted to have an independent, standalone victimology, the signs of victims. I think that that uh, that, that era is closing down now, and I, I see that it is again coming back to the mother discipline, which is criminology. So I myself uh, define myself as a as a victimological criminologist or a, a victim-oriented criminologist. Uh, and I, I am known, I, I, I agree, in the, also in my own country, because I'm the, the, the founder of Victim Support, the Netherlands. So I'm known as a victimologist, but I feel myself as a criminologist with a special interest in victimology. So that's, that's I have very, uh, yeah, I have a clear uh, concept myself about that. And again, historically, that is also uh, was an interesting debate from the very first hours of the World Society of Victimology. Yeah. And then, well, of course, you also taught victimology at the University of Lausanne. Mm -hmm. One thing I regret is that uh, at the time we were not recording the classes, uh, but perhaps this is one project that we could do sometime, sometime soon, because what could be better than to have you teaching criminology for some hours. I mean, it cannot get better. So I think that this could be done with you and with a few of the of the founding members of the ESC that uh, to create like uh, um, ESC, European Society of Criminology, to create a, yeah, some 
some classes, you know, um, because all this knowledge must be kept somewhere, and the students were very happy with you in, at the University of Lausanne. But this is something that we can we can discuss later. Uh, let's see if let's see if it's an idea I have. Let's see if it if it works. And just just to go back a little bit. My last you, lectures were at Leuven University, where in Belgium. Ah, yeah. Okay, okay. Ah, but they, these are in Dutch. That yeah? was after Lausanne. Yeah, it was was nice. This okay. was this was in English or in Dutch? No, that was in English. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. This, this exists. Okay, in, where in the master program at Leuven? I at Leuven, okay. Yeah. Theoretical criminology. Yeah, okay, okay. Then one thing that you mentioned about uh, criminology in the Netherlands, you mentioned this, uh, the 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 growth of WODC and then later the NSCR, but you also mentioned that. In the 80s, these places that are now very um, nice places to visit for the tourists were very dangerous places. And that changed. So it means that the criminal policies that were introduced did something, eh? They worked. Ah, yes, to the extent that, that they were uh, maybe even self-defeating for a criminology. Uh, we just discussed that it's difficult to raise money for a victimization survey if, if, if crime is no longer a top concern. And this is indeed, you, you know, the, the, the I think the theoretical framework of the research unit at the Home Office in the UK and of uh, WODC, as, as, as you call it, and we call it, uh, the theoretical frame was uh, was opportunity theory or, or or routine activity theory, as as the Americans call it, which is a, a very weird name. I, I much prefer opportunity theory. So the idea was that, of course, you need a criminal justice system, but you should also persuade the public and and the business community to reduce the the, the opportunities of crime by by situational crime prevention or social crime prevention. That was the basic philosophy or theory of this uh, policy-oriented criminology of the 80s. And indeed, I think there is strong, strong, really very strong evidence that situational crime prevention measures have been booming across the world, uh, the industrialized world. But even in China, for instance, also there is much more crime prevention now than I was uh, 30 years ago. And that that indeed has had a quite an impact on the level of common crime, on burglary, on car theft, that's almost uh, disappeared, uh, car theft, but also on other types of crime. Uh, so I, I think indeed that the the fall the fall of the level of common crime across the Western world is is partly the result of knowledge based criminological 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 knowledge-based uh, policymaking. Yeah. Yes, that's, 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 I think there is, there is a strong case to make there. Yeah. That, that criminology has really made an impact. Uh, much more, for instance, sociology. And that may also explain a little bit why criminology is much more flourishing than sociology. But sociology didn't have a much of a lasting impact on policymaking. Yeah, and 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 Jan, how these ideas? Because you were doing the the survey since the beginning of the seventies, and you wrote about opportunity. But then the idea was formalized through um, 
first Godfredson, uh, Hindelang, and and Garofalo, I think it was with the lifestyle uh, theory. Exposure, yeah. And then routine activities by Felsony Cohen. But how this? How did you uh, interacted with these people? I know you interacted. And how was it that this uh, situation of crime prevention? Then Ron Clark also. How how did it yeah, work? Ron played, uh, Ron played an, an important role, but he emigrated to the U.S. As you know, he went to to uh, to John Jay and and also the, the Rutgers. Rutgers. Huh? Rutgers. Rutgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Rutgers. No, no, no problem. No, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, Rutgers. There is another personal factor, and that is that Michael Hindling, that uh, I, I, I got to know him at this Münster symposium, but he was already very ill at that time, and he died very, very young. So he was a, he was one of the the most promising criminologists of our generation, but he he, he passed away yeah, at a very er, very early age. Yeah, that left, it, that left a bit of a vacuum in victimologically oriented criminology in the U.S. It's really true. He had his co-authors, but he was the he was the he was really the the leader of the pack. Uh, so sometimes sometimes these things have an impact on uh, the development of a, of a discipline. I think. Yeah, this person. I mean, there's some yeah some people play a key role, and then. Then they disappear. Yeah, Travis here, she told me that they were, um, because for my PhD, I use a lot their book, Measuring Crime. Eh? Yeah. And then I, yeah. the moment when I had the opportunity to discuss with Hirschi, unfortunately, I didn't made a, they didn't record the interview, but I spent the whole afternoon discussing with him and I use it a lot for my PhD. And he said, ah, I'm not proud of that book, which was very disappointing for me. Because of the way in which the weight, the sample was weighted, because it was a small sample that was multiplied. But he explained to me that uh, Hindelang was already ill, and they wanted to publish because they knew he was going to die, in sort of brain tumor or something like that. So it's a, it's really a pity. But this Münster uh, symposium that you mentioned is not the same for the creation of the International Society of Victimology. Eh? It's the same. It's the same. Ah. It was I think the last conference that Michael uh, Inlang uh, attended in Europe, and he was not in, he was not interested in the in the foundation, or or I I may mix things up, but in my uh, recollection it was it was both uh, organized by uh, Schneider. Uh, ah yes, in, uh, in Germany. Ah Schneider, yeah, he also played the. He was coming to the ESC conference for many years. Uh, mm -hmm. He came until then, until he died, probably. So that's another point. And also, Richard Sparks was there active, eh? the, not the Richard, not the, the Richard Sparks that is now at Edinburgh, but the, the other Richard Sparks who did yes. um, the older one. Well, he did the first uh, victimization survey in uh, in the UK uh, together with Hazel Gen. Yeah. who unfortunately uh, became a sociology of law, a sociologist of law. Uh, and became very, very well known in in that capacity, but she was lost for criminology. Hazel Gen and Sparks did uh, did the first victimization survey in uh, in the UK. Yeah, but I mean, there were networks because people think that networks is something new and that now because we can connect uh, uh, through the internet. But already at that time, there were um, international conferences and people um, getting together. Eh? Yes. And certainly, the Council of Europe played yeah. a prominent role because there was an annual conference 
yeah. uh, in Strasbourg or, uh, organized and funded by the Council of Europe. And they always invited uh, two, at least two, criminologists from, uh, from each member state of the Council of Europe. And, and that's also why uh, Poland was a member of the first ICBS, because I met a Polish criminologist, and he, he uh, org and that was in the communist time, the first ICBS. Uh, he organized a small survey in Warsaw because we knew each other from Strasbourg. And it's a great pity that in a moment of uh, unwisdom, the Council of Europe decided to abolish these conferences to save money. There was yeah. also a scientific council for many years that was also abolished. Uh, already, and yeah, now it's history that that, that there was there were even those conferences. But this was an annual get together, also of young criminologists, and that's where I met Martin, Pat Mayu, uh, Polish guys. There were, there were always two people from the U.S. The, the, the French were very active in that in that setting, also yeah. probably because it was in France. So Cesse Deep was very was always there. So it was really, uh, the Scandinavians were there, of course, very uh, yeah, profitable because you bring together some young criminologists and there was no European society, of course. Eh? That is that that I also want to, to emphasize. But the, the inter interesting thing was that it was, of course, also policy oriented because the Council of Europe used it to set the agenda for their policy making, for their new recommendations, uh, and so on. So it was linked to policy making in Europe, more than the European society. Yeah, it's very difficult to trace the history of the Council of Europe. All the people of your generation always talk about these conferences. There was a, a Greek lady. Aglaia Tsitsura. Aglaia Tsitsura. Yeah. Thank you for remembering the name. Yeah. Apparently, and she came to the first meetings of the ESC, and I discussed with her, but this, this was before the idea, my 20 years before the idea of having this podcast. Uh, um, and unfortunately, she died because she played a key role. Eh? She was very interested in criminology. Eh? I think she had a degree in criminology, a French degree. Certainly, mm -hmm. she had a French degree in, in social research and maybe even in criminology. And she was indeed the, the, the anchor of all these criminological interests. She was always there. She was very committed. She was one of those ladies. And we had Irene Mellop at the UN and, and, and in those days, and we had uh, Aglaia Tsitsura in Strasbourg. Uh, you could also always rely on them. Very uh, good organizer, very dedicated person, yes. And that that function is no longer there. <laughs> Because. No, also because, I mean, there were two phenomena. I think first the, the Council of Europe at that time was mainly Western Europe and some Central Eastern European countries. But then uh, as it became bigger and bigger, yeah, it became more difficult to, um, to handle. And also the growth of the European Union um, meant that some resources that previously were going to the, to the Council of Europe probably went to the European Union? Yeah, I would say uh, particularly human resources. The ministries were left of the EU lost a little mm. bit of interest in the council because they had another forum. Yeah, It's not that money was transferred from Strasbourg to Brussels, but it was, it was certainly so, uh, true that 
for a ministry of justice, it, the meetings in Brussels became much more important, of course. Uh, that, that's where the decisions were taken that were really of direct political interest. And then, uh, yeah, that indirectly, Strasbourg became a little bit less pertinent for them, politically pertinent. That's what and happened. This is a major uh, information that you're giving because the persons that did not see that, it's difficult to imagine that at that time, because it was always, when you see the resolution, it's always the committee of the ministries of justice. Eh? But yes. at that time, it was, yeah, the, the place to be. Eh? I remember yeah. that I accompanied the minister of justice, the man of the letter. I accompanied <laughs> him to a me to a meetings in Strasbourg. These yeah. were important meetings for the minister of justice. Uh, they went for two days to Strasbourg every year to discuss an agenda of with policy issues. Yeah. Not only criminal law, but also family law and other topics. And now, of course, Brussels is uh, is the, is for them the number one priority for international yeah. meetings. Yeah. yeah the, the, the lucky thing is then the ESC, the European Society, was created and and at least we have a forum for uh, for European criminologists. But as you mentioned, of course, at that time it was much more uh, criminal policy oriented. Eh? So, do you think that now that crime is, uh, especially let's say cyber crime, eh? you you see that as a, probably an opportunity for um, empirical criminology to take the the lead a little bit more? No, it's not only cyber crime. I have the feeling that there is uh, a violent crime. Uh, also, extreme violent crime by very young people is 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 an emerging issue too. So yes, I think uh, the political interest in our discipline will will is likely to grow. Yeah, uh, in the coming years. You told me once we discussed this about this cycle. Said that uh, you said that when you were studying crime was was always going up, 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 up. Then it went went down, uh, and of course, yeah. Situation and crime prevention surely played a role. And what could have happened now with these extreme violent uh, crimes? Eh? Because it's not only. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there is a risk of this kind of um, violent crimes going up. Do, do you have any uh, hypothesis about this? What could have happened? You know, one of my favorites was that that a lot of violence is beer related. That's why I. I was hated by the Heineken uh, Heineken company here. <laughs> I, I, I once gave a lecture uh, in Australia, and it was all over the TV. Uh, they they didn't like it because they are an ordinary bloke in 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 Australia drinks beer, of course. Wine is for for the snobs, so they didn't like <laughs> they didn't like it in Australia. And when I was back in in at Schiphol Airport, I the first uh, call I got was from someone from. Uh, <laughs> from Heineken Brewery, whether I was out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, no, it's no longer beer. I cannot say that because the alcohol consumption is going down among young people. Fortunately, they they drink uh, zero beer, zero alcohol beer is extremely popular now. Heineken makes a lot of money from <laughs> zero <laughs> alcohol beer. But I think... This is really sociology. I think there is, we, we have a new era of alienation of a younger population from the established institutions, norms, and, and, and values, uh, school dropouts, 
they can make much more money in the drug uh, market, of course. But I think it's a it's a kind of alienation from the from from the dominant culture, and more than than maybe uh, a long time before. That's how I feel it. These these yeah. young people are totally uh, disconnected, and they uh, 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 yes they do they do they do crazy things at very young age, which is which is scary. Yeah, you you need you need sociological criminologists for that. I don't think that they are necessarily have all mental problems or something. I don't think so. It is it is cultural alienation uh, primarily. Of course, there are many many of them are also cognitively handicapped, uh, but that's for me not a really driver because there have always been people who are cognitively deprived. But this new phenomenon has to do something with our culture. Like yeah, we 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 can't absorb them somehow in the main in mainstream society, and that's a sociological issue, of course. Yeah, now this is this is quite interesting because I mean one thing that we always ask our guests is how crime change during their lifetime, and um, and your generation is particularly interesting because you lived half of your life with the old Europe and half of your life with the new Europe. You saw all these transformations, the the changes also in society. Is it possible to give an overview of that, how crime has changed and maybe how the, the social reaction to crime changed too? We have the crime curve. It went up and up and up and now it seems to go down and down. But now we have the end of the, of the downward slope, I think, because of cyber, which is a, which really is a game changer. The, the personality profiles do no longer apply. The most of the theoretical frames do no longer. Uh, lifestyle exposure theory doesn't apply anymore. It's all it's all up for grabs at the moment. Also theoretically, and of course, certainly uh, in in the urban areas in in Europe and in my own country, in, in my own city Amsterdam, the the younger pop population is 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 ethnic. That wasn't the case in the 70s. We had some people from Suriname. We had some Moluccans, but these were very, really, really minorities. No longer, they are no longer minorities. We are, we are uh, ethnically uh, highly diverse uh, city, and Rotterdam is, is the same. That is uh, something to reflect on, and of course, that is related to what I call a cultural alienation. That is, of course, also related to the enormous uh, change in the in the ethnic composition of the urban populations these things are related that, that's why I, I i said this is a sociological issue more than a psychological issue and maybe for the future uh, marcello i i hope i also said that in meetings with nscr uh, i hope that that sociology can make a bit of a comeback because at the moment the there is a clear uh, the weight is on 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 individual studies uh, on, on on psychology, and much less on sociology. Yeah. Certainly in the Netherlands, I cannot really view. I have a total overview, but in the Netherlands, you can clearly see that the PhDs are very rarely sociological in uh, in, in in perspective. Uh, I hope that there will we will see a comeback of sociological criminology. 
Yeah, perhaps what happens is that uh, sociology departments see criminology uh, studies as a clear uh, threat. I mean, it is a threat for them. Eh? I remember at the Catolica University in Milano, they had like 20 professors of uh, uh, of victimology and two uh, in uh, in criminology, but most of the students were in criminology. And 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 the growth of all these problems of criminology, in my opinion, also made that people identify with the criminology, um, and they don't want to be uh, to do sociology of deviance. Yeah, but there is a work to be done towards. Uh, Robert Dagnew wrote about this towards unified criminology, eh? but. Uh, what I see is more a fragmentation with all these labels that are used now, green criminology, um, blue criminology. Mm -hmm. I think there is one criminology and then we are inside, but there is this tendency to use yeah, collective identities, which I do not share. Um, but, but also also sociology has been fragmented yeah. into gender studies or ethnic studies. That is also fragmentation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is not in in, in the Netherlands. Uh, there was a lot of grand theory, from, uh, sociology. Yeah. Uh, Robert Elias was extremely uh, influential here in Amsterdam. There is there is not a trace left of that, of that kind of uh, sociology. Yeah. So it, it the problem comes from both sides. Uh, we don't include yeah. these people. That also the, there are, there are very few. Uh, uh, very few students in sociology, certainly in Amsterdam. Yeah, now that you mentioned, there is a very good MOOC online by um, a Dutch criminologist, uh, sociologist, sorry, Bart van, okay, my pronunciation, Herik Huitzen. Bart van Herik Huitzen. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. That yeah, yeah. He, he has a MOOC. Probably you could take it in, in one of these, probably in Coursera or something like that. This is very, 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 very good. Huh? Uh, only the, the first part is there. And so there is a tradition. And he met Elias in the Netherlands. Uh, you, you, you also met him, eh? Yes, 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 I met him. Yes, he was. Uh, but he was a, a guest professor in Amsterdam when I was a student. Uh, so I, uh, yes, I met him. How, 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 because he was in the UK, but he moved to the Netherlands because he's, everybody, in, everybody, no, I mean, a few people that I know in the Netherlands, they talk about him. Did he move? He was just a guest uh, there. He was a little bit more than a guest, but he was already more or less retired, but he also lived in Amsterdam. I, I, he had a flat in Amsterdam ah. and many friends. And his books were were translated also here. You you should understand that he was a rather marginal uh, refugee from Germany in the UK. I think when he he had already published uh, his main uh, his opus uh, in German before he became a refugee. Yeah, and exactly. It was, was thirty nine. It was published in Switzerland because, of course, ah. he was a, a Jew in Germany. It was very difficult to publish. Yeah. He moved in 33 to the UK. Then ah. his parents came to see him and he said, don't go back. They went back. And then the second edition of the book is dedicated to them. He knows where one of them died. The other, no. So so it was terrible. And then yeah. the, the book was published in Switzerland, 39. Okay, uh, okay. But did he get a? Did he? Did he even have a chair in the in the UK? I'm not so sure, but not certainly not at Oxford or Cambridge. It it, it was a, 
a difficult mode of living for someone who had already published a very important work before he emigrated to the UK. Yeah. And the reception in the UK was uh, lukewarm. Uh, and he got a very warm embrace suddenly in the 70s in from the people in Amsterdam. Yeah, and also because the the his book was translated very late to uh, to English in the 70s. And I think because I've been trying to study this, the, the, the big comeback is when um, Crime and Justice, an annual review of research edited by, by Michael Chonry and at that time Norval Morris, they had this article in, 18, in 1981 by another historian that they quote systematically, and I don't, I'm going to remember his name, and he introduces in criminology the civilization process because it was yeah. at the time of the increase of crime in the U.S., and um, Morris and, and, and Tony, they knew that uh, they knew this work uh, and they knew that crime in the long run, in the very long From run. the Middle Ages on, yeah. Exactly. Was going down. Talk, so yeah. He was already uh, a little bit received in the Netherlands uh, before the war. So his German uh, work was known in, in, um, among the literati, the yeah. intellectual elite. They wrote about him and appreciated his work. Yeah. That was before the war, when it had not yet been translated. But before the war, uh, read, uh, reading and commenting on German and French books was quite normal in the Netherlands. That explains a little bit why he might have had a better reception in the Netherlands than in the UK, because his German books were known. Yeah, uh, these are things that are no longer known, you know, and. Um, yeah. Well, maybe they are also useless to know. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is yeah. a legacy. I mean, yeah, it, it is quite impressive. And um, because also when people, well, I don't want to go over Elias, Elias alone, but also when people read him, they usually misunderstand him because Norbert Elias was saying, yeah, but this can be destroyed by, uh, by a regime based on propaganda. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the basic instincts are there. Yeah, and, and, and also uh, the, the most important things in societies are often not observed by anyone. Yeah. That's also one of the messages of Elias. It happens gradually, and it's only the next generation that will understand what was happening, and, and you never know what's going on in your own life. Maybe this, 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 this rise in the new populists is much more fundamental than than we when than we keep thinking. So that's that is a typically Elias idea that these trends go unnoticed for a long time. Yeah, I totally agree because it, it also fits with the idea of gradual evolution over evolutionary time. And I think cultural anthropologists and cultural evolutionists also share the same view. Norbert Elias ideas are very much I mean, known among cultural and evolutionary anthropologists nowadays. So I think you may be very much uh, right making the case that we don't observe while we're in it. We're in the moment, so we don't see the huge changes. Probably the next generation will see how didn't they see it coming. But it's very difficult because you're in the middle of the things happening. So absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think another Big challenges, for example, cybercrime. Eh? 
you said the, the theories, <laughs> we need to adapt them, we need to change things. Also, rehabilitation, this is something that we discussed at the conference at the Council of Europe. Huh? How people who do cybercrime, I mean, usually, well, I'm, I'm overweighted, what you say is don't keep free, um, a, a lot of food in the refrigerator, <laughs> because then you will be tempted. But how can you live in this world, which is a hybrid world, I mean, we are now connected like that, then we go back to some sort of physical world, but then we connect all the time. I mean, for these people, what you cannot put them far from the the instruments that they use to commit their crimes. Yeah, that's true. Although I I know that some someone in the Netherlands is now doing research on how you keep young you you can make uh, all these technical devices that you can use to hack uh, less accessible. Now you they can buy anything anywhere. The most you can mo buy the most sophisticated hacking. Uh, software by just pushing some buttons that could be made more difficult i think I but just just an idea this is just an idea. Mm -hmm. but i mean i like this idea but in that case you are translating the traditional theories just yeah to a new i mean new object so yeah that's true i'm, I'm not sure to what extent i mean it's, it's open for debate uh, that the, the Classical theories will remain useful because the theories will probably be adapted to new phenomena and applied differently. I think it's the criminological imagination we need to use our old between brackets frameworks and, and uh, translate or operationally measure them to fit the new phenomena. Unstructured routines or, or opportunities exist online, offline. Uh, you are always fighting the 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 previous war, <laughs> maybe with 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 the the tactics and the strategy of the previous war. But you need, of course, totally new thinking. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Fighting the 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 previous war eh? because now also the speed at which things change. So you have seen all these changes, but now artificial intelligence. Eh? so quickly it's it's growing eh? and yeah. well this changes a lot everything how knowledge is constructed um and it goes at the speed that you cannot control because it's already version four and yeah so do you have any thoughts about that <laughs> of the well, a world I, run I, by I, I leave that to my grandchildren <laughs> I, will, I will raise it with them they know so much more this is really their world. They, they. I have a grandson who doesn't, hardly leaves his room, and and he's quite a normal guy, but they are so obsessed with with the, with this gaming and things. Uh, it's also their social life, the, uh, the game with with friends, but they don't have to meet anymore. They can do it uh, the, uh, behind the screen. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's hard to understand. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not for us to come up with the oh, the new series, the new generation. Yeah, yeah the new generation. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so we went through a lot of uh, subjects. Really interesting. Are we missing something? I think. Ah, the pre maybe one thing. Huh? The prisons, because the Netherlands. You, I know you wrote about that some years ago. 
the Netherlands reduce the number regressing of... to the mean I call that yes yeah. regressing to the mean yes you're right yeah yeah but uh yeah okay I I think that uh what happened in the Netherlands is that we had to to uh to address the, the problems of international drugs trafficking you cannot be a, a, a heaven in a, in a bad world uh, if 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 the traffickers can decide to go to Schiphol Airport because the the sentences are half of what they are elsewhere, that's not a that is not a good idea. So we had to adapt temporarily. But I think underneath the criminal justice system in the Netherlands is still relatively benign, and that is and and I was right. I predicted that we that there would be a regression to the mean in the Netherlands, and that's exactly what happened, because we are now I think well you know more about that than I do, Matilda. But Very I think. Low. We we are we dropped we are again very low. Scandinavia and the Netherlands, Germany went and down. It was the same in the 1970s. That was also why uh, Luke Hulsman thought let's let's abolish that system uh, anyway because he's he saw that the number of prisoners in the Netherlands was lower than anywhere else and it became lower by the year. He said, well, let's let's extrapolate from there. To, to a country without a criminal justice system, that was that that kept Hulsman uh, uh, optimistic. But but now it's dropping again. A brief point that maybe we, uh, I would like to raise is that I I can say with with full confidence that victimology is alive and kicking in the Netherlands uh, in terms of research. Uh, first with Interfic, now with NS with a special group within NSCR, which is a powerful group, but also, I mean, the 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 society, the 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 victim support Netherlands organization, is a huge organization uh, with hundreds of staff, and I sometimes feel that we are a little bit uh, ex uh, exceptional. I know Belgium also has a lot of interest in victims, but Absolutely. in many other countries in Europe, I. I don't have the idea it it has reached the level that it has in the Netherlands. The the the, the public discourse about victims is very much alive. There is no politician who can uh, ignore that that agenda. Uh, and we have well, as I said, we have a very powerful victim support organization. We have a compensation fund for victims that gives uh, out awards to, to ten thousand people per year. And I don't know. I think we are a little bit exceptional in that, and yeah. that's an in, for me that's interesting. Right? So why why is that? Why is it still so underdeveloped in Southern Europe? At least that's my feeling. In Spain, in Italy, yeah, yeah, you 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 know more about Spain probably. My feeling is that, for example, in Spain, I mean, okay, victim support one one thing, and then there is some associations uh, of victims, eh? And in some countries, um, for example, in Spain, these were mainly for victims of ETA, yeah, the, the terrorist group. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe, and not maybe, and they were politically placed, uh, let's say, to the right part of the political, political spectrum. And, you know, the social scientists have a tendency to be on the other side of the political um, spectrum. And then I think they, they couldn't manage to find the connection there. And they saw the victims' associations as um, a risk for getting 
um, more um, extreme uh, punishment. Huh? The, the same happened in Germany. Germany is part of that league in that respect. Uh, and in the UK and in the Netherlands and in, uh, in Sweden, uh, that, that's not the case. It was yeah. more an extension of, of the welfare state or even of uh, the probation office who said, we, we, we reach out to the offenders, let's also reach out to the other party. So this is a little bit maybe a peculiarity of uh, Northwestern Europe. Yeah, but you play the role in the creation of Victim Support Netherlands, eh? Certainly, certainly, yes. And how this, how, if that was when you, was, you, know, you were at the Research and Documentation Center, how, how this idea came? It is part. It has partly to do in the Netherlands with the resistance movement, because my teacher, Professor Nagel at Leiden University, was a, a very uh, important hero of the resistance against the Germans, with a lot of interest also in the Holocaust. That that is an important feature of Dutch society that the memory of the Holocaust is very much alive uh, from the 70s onwards. In particular, not right after the war, when everyone just wanted to rebuild the society and forget about all these awful things. But from the 70s onwards, it became a major issue in the Netherlands. And that that is probably a source of inspiration for a victimology, as it is in Israel, where there is a lot of interest in victimology, always was. And it's obvious why. We have a, we, we are a little bit similar in that respect. Uh, and that cannot explain the interest in in the UK. This is something more for the, for continental Europe. It's also true, uh, Marcello, but I will not go into this. It's also true for myself that there is a, sp a special interest in my family for uh, the resistance uh, against uh, the Holocaust. Yeah. So d deep down, there is a layer where this plays a role. In in, uh, in 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 my country, yeah, and also for me personally. But still, I also feel that maybe it is uh, related to Protestantism and and Catholicism. If I say Northwest Europe, we we all know that this is also the Protestant part. Yeah, uh, and this is uh, this is not a topic that people like to discuss because it very much looks like stupid uh, idea of they being Catholic, us being Protestant, which is not at all my point, of course. Nevertheless, these religious traditions still have some impact. And I, I have the feeling that in the, in the Catholic Church in particular, you have this strong image of the, of the victim as a passive sufferer uh, and not as someone that uh, is a resilient and maybe even uh, a polemical survivor. Uh, that's not a Catholic idea of a victim. I'm not saying it's the opposite with Protestantism, but I think this is part of the explanation for me that that, that should be further explored. That their idea is, okay, they, they, they are terrible victims, and, but that doesn't mean that they, they should be uh, a, a party in the criminal trial. Let's keep them out of their it's part of the Catholic tradition, I think, the, the, the Catholic stereotype of a, of a sufferer who's, who is a meek sufferer. And that's a fundamental Christian concept, and it's, and it's not a bad concept at all. But it, it may uh, inhibit 
some people in 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 in, in tra traditionally of provincially Catholic countries to to understand that the victim should become a a, a real powerful player in 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 the discourse, but also in the, in the justice system. There may be something of that there. It's a very nice interpretation eh? because we go back to Durkheim and, uh, and uh, I, I I love it. <laughs> you know, I grew up in. Sorry, sorry. We need sociological explanations. Yeah, you yes. know that I grew up in a divided family. There was the 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 the, the Swiss family were Protestants. Uh, and the um, Spanish and Italian family were Catholics, and so I was always exposed. And religion was more important. People would talk more easily about religion. And um, now I'm surprised I use references to the Bible, and half of the the students not get them, uh, even if it was all, maybe it's cultural issue. I mean, uh, that's also true, Matthew. I had the same experience in Lausanne as I had at Tilburg University, which is traditionally Catholic university. The, you know, the only students who immediately picked up when I made a reference to the, the figure of of, uh, of of Jesus Christ and so on were the Muslim students. They they have much more knowledge now, even about Christianity, than, than the traditionally Dutch families. Strange, very strange. I, I use these ideas. I mean, I, I would say that even if you don't, it doesn't matter if you are religious or not, but the, the, the myth, the founding myth is... You are in a garden. You can eat every, every, everything. You can do whatever you like, but this tree. And what is the first thing they do? They eat the tree. <laughs> they eat the the, the the fruit of the tree. Wisdom. So I always make jokes that if if God has been a, a situational a, a situational criminologist, he would have put a wall or something <laughs> to avoid them to enter. But I'm only, I'm the only one laughing while I'm making this joke. <laughs> Um, so, but I still do it because I think it's part of part of the uh, of our culture, and uh, and I really enjoy this explanation that you give. Uh, really, yeah, we can keep it. So, if you, I have been contacted by a victim association in in Argentina. I am going to give a series of conferences in, in, in the next two weeks. Uh, what would you recommend me to do? To to so I, I get this idea of making the victims powerful, eh? because Argentina is mainly a Catholic country, you know, yeah. basically. But I will try to keep this, and there is something else that you would recommend me to do. Well, you should ask them, uh, what does the word uh, victima in Spanish? Uh, victima. Yeah, exactly. victima. victima, what does it mean? Yeah. Just give them that assignment. Okay. Uh, associate, what do you feel? What, what, what does it mean and what are your associations? Then they will find out that it means the sacrificed. And I know all, your article about that. Is exactly, very exactly. But, but I know from my own experience, that teaching experience, that it's a nice opening. Because they will really say, ah, that's an eye-opener. So it's Jesus Christ, what it means. And what does Jesus Christ mean for us? What is suffering? What is the suffering of Jesus Christ? Is he, is he uh, protesting? Does he say, I want to speak up about, <laughs> about this, or is he silent? You see, you bring them to their own imagery of, if they have any Christian knowledge. That, I, of course, is... Uh, <laughs> I still think something can be done, uh, even if it's a tough time for religions, but um, uh, that's a very good advice. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And Jan, really, 
it's always a pleasure talking to you. And you said so many interesting things today. You cannot imagine. You, you, you have to clip. You have to clip. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, a lot of things really yeah. impressive. But yeah, really, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, thank really you very, enjoyed. very much indeed. And I hope the people after listening will regain interest in both international, comparative and sociological uh, criminology. So thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It was Thank my you. pleasure. Yeah. It was my pleasure. We'll meet again. Yeah, yeah? we'll meet again. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. Ciao. Bye. 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 Thank you for following Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast. This podcast is edited by Eduardo Coco from the University of Lausanne. Our theme song is Seagull's Night, Noche de Gaviotas, composed by Gustavo Cantero, arranged by Tato Germano, and played by Tato and Gustavo with the voices of Sasha Conte and Alejandro Turco Gujot. Your host, Arliven Pauvels from Ghent University, Belgium, and Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Cheers, and see you soon. <laughs>